0: Thanks for listening to the Media People podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash Views expressed by participants are personal. Coming from a family of scientific and mathematical academics wasn't enough to deter Kaveh Shomanish from pursuing a career in entertainment. And he wasn't about to let something like university, which he attended for an entire month, get in the way. After leaving university, Kaveh packed up at the age of 18, moving south to Los Angeles to kick off his career. He started as an on-air personality, hosting an entertainment news show produced for the global Persian community. Kaveh then moved into producing and talent management, working with the likes of HGTV and Netflix. At HGTV, he worked on the popular real estate renovation show, Love It or List It, handling brand and product integrations. He's taken 21 years of product placement experience and founded Placed, a platform that enables advertisers to reach their target audience within online community groups.
1: Placed enables advertising within private online community groups, kind of like mom groups and gamers, sport groups whether it's on Facebook, LinkedIn, Telegram, Slack, WhatsApp, and so on. And essentially what we do is we turn community owners into influencers. So we pay community owners, just like influencers, to post ads within their community, but not just any types of ads, just very contextual ones related to their actual community that provides some kind of value to their members.
0: Kabe, thanks for stopping by. I'm looking forward to our chat. As always, we like to go back to the beginning. Where are you from?
1: Uh, I was born in uh, Montreal, good old Montreal. Unfortunately, I was only there for two months. It seemed uh, like a very fun place to be later in life. But I, I moved to Ottawa with my family, and uh, it was a great experience. I, uh, I think a lot of my roots uh, were, were based in Ottawa. A lot of things I learned throughout uh, the next you know, 30 or so years of my time. I moved out of Ottawa when I was 18. I uh, moved to L.A and then uh, pursued a career in entertainment, and then from there came back to Toronto. And then now I travel back and forth uh, between Toronto and LA.
0: Okay, we got a lot to pick apart there. First things first, you mentioned that you were born in Montreal, but the family was only there for two months before you moved to Ottawa. So why did the family move to Ottawa?
1: Well, unfortunately, uh, it's not because of me as a two-month-old. So in this case, my dad got a job in aerospace, uh, so... He's an aerospace engineer. Well, technically an electrical engineer, but he uh, worked at an aerospace company and uh, had a really fun job and worked with really big uh, space agencies. And then it was a job that was tough to pass up. So, and we had some relatives that also came from Iran over to uh, over to Ottawa as well. So, just from all aspects, it was a place where my dad and my mom decided to uh, to hold down the fort
0: so what was life like growing up in ottawa
1: well at the time i didn't feel the quietness but it was it was fun it was a lot of fun it was a lot of outdoor activities uh just great kind decent people in ottawa uh it taught me a lot of my roots uh also i mean i had to take about (laughs) From where we lived which part of Ottawa is orleans uh and we had to take three buses i think just to get to downtown i don't miss that part but uh and the cold winters but otherwise ottawa was a great experience and uh, i'll always be thankful and i still talk to a lot of the friends uh, that i met over there
0: let's talk about some of your interests growing up the entertainment industry or just entertainment in general you were big into airband lip-syncing how does someone, but how does someone get into that? Cause usually it's parents are like, you want to sing or be an entertainer. Here's a guitar or here's take piano lessons, but you were doing kind of the complete opposite of that.
1: I mean, look, have you ever had a fantasy to, to go out on stage in front of thousands of fans at one of the big arenas and just belt out an amazing tune and have them cheer your name? Oh, have Absolutely. You? What what was that? Uh, did you have long rocker hair or was it just shorter hair?
0: I wasn't allowed to grow my hair out. My parents weren't my parents weren't big on that. You've got uh, old school Italian parents. If you don't have a decent haircut, you can't get a job. And that's all they were concerned about was that finish school and get a job. So, I mean, I don't really. God, my favorite band growing up was probably the Tea Party. I was rocking out to them a little bit. I liked some of the bigger bands, too, like Rolling Stones I mean dating myself a little bit Guns and Roses use your illusion that was a big deal when I was growing up but what about yourself
1: Yeah for, for me I mean from the air band perspective uh I it, it was Ricky Martin uh and, and also uh, hold on hold on hold on hold on Ricky Martin how how Ricky how did you get into Ricky Martin were you well, living La Vida I,
0: Loca? you know.
1: I was, about I, that anyway. I, I was definitely uh, living La Vida Colda in Ottawa. But uh, but in the end, I was actually doing um, Ricky Martin because at the time, living La Vida Loca did come out, if I recall correctly, and, and he was really hot then uh, in terms of his popularity. And we were having these airband competition at our school or airband performances a couple of years in a row. And because I had that same fantasy, as we just described, uh, this was my little teaser or taste of it because I definitely cannot sing. So I did everyone a favor by, by leaning into the lip singing. And in fact, when I did Ricky Martin, this, this math teacher <laughs> taught me samba and some other moves uh, after school. And I was very fortunate actually, I'll never forget this. Uh, and then eventually I, I tried to do, you know, a quarter of the job that maybe Ricky Martin did or maybe a one of the job uh, as well as him Uh and then eventually did Cisco ninety eight degrees Casey and JoJo. were just doing the circuit.
0: Oh my God, you threw so many out there. It's God. What were the? What was? What was that collection of CDs called? It wasn't Big Shiny Tunes. It was Much Dance. It feels like you just yes. went through like Much Dance. Well, let's I don't know. Ninety six did like two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> let's double down on Cisco for a second because the one song that everyone knows from him, like from when yes. he went out on, on his own, not Drew Hill, was. The thong song. Did you actually yeah. lip sync that at school?
1: Well, for one, I did not wear a thong. Just just <laughs> that's the disclaimer. Uh, but secondly, I did actually do that. And they were I OK with that. it. I can't uh, seem to OK with it nowadays. They were. And in fact, I even had backup dancers uh, <laughs> and they and they happen to be women in this particular case. Actually, no, there, there was two guys and and, and two two uh, boys and, and and two girls and uh it was a lot of fun but we definitely didn't have too many risque moves considering that again it was a little bit conservative but it was uh, it was a fun song it was actually one of my favorite you were also a big footballer can i say that or soccer player what term should i I be using no you know what a footballer implies that i probably did really well in europe so you can keep going with footballer you're a big footballer how did you how did you find your way into soccer
0: or football growing up
1: well at the time i didn't like swimming and uh I tried uh, basketball for a while, uh, but given uh, given my vertical disadvantages, uh, I, I ended up resorting to soccer. And uh, being passionate uh, Persian uh, in, in in during the World Cup and watching some other people around me and really enjoying Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, uh, back then. Uh, and then I just you know got caught with the bug, and then. Nearly uh, every day, I mean, starting from two years old, I was being trained uh, to be a soccer player uh, or to trained in soccer. And then eventually over time, I started to play a few hours a day and then uh, tried out for Team Canada. But the U-17 team of Team Canada, I was cut on the first cut of that one. Uh, And then eventually just, you know, uh, extinguished all my dreams of uh, of playing in Europe and then just truly just gave up and just decided to go into entertainment it was time maybe I just was burnt out playing soccer but it was a uh, one of the best experiences of my life
0: it sounds like you were a rep player were you in your younger years going all around like Ottawa the greater Ottawa area maybe even southern
1: Ontario and Quebec playing games we did go around there we went all around Ontario as well uh, and uh, we did I, I played for the the province uh, for a portion of it some of the the tail end of my career playing soccer. Uh, and yes, it was it was fun. We were going to Toronto and having a great time. Uh, and yeah, it was just, it was just a beautiful experience. In fact, I remember once coming from Italy, I went to a trip uh with my mom to go to Italy. And then there's we were the new Ronaldo cleats had just come out. I think they were blue and yellow. I shouldn't say I think I actually remember them as a the spitting image as those to yesterday. Uh, we were in Italy and then we went to Switzerland and we went all over Italy to try to find these cleats uh, everywhere. And uh, we asked, and and at the time I speak Italian as well. So at the time uh, I I was just learning Italian in school. So it was fresh. So I was showing it off and (laughs) trying to speak as well as them. And they'd always either answer me in Italian or, laugh or you know answer me back in english but uh in the end uh we couldn't find it anywhere in italy we went to at least 15 20 different stores and then eventually we went to switzerland of all places for a couple of days and there's a a store called Schaffhausen plots i still remember it to this day that's how impactful it was for me and then eventually ended up purchasing uh those those cleats and that's when the cleat started to have the you know the cleat itself was kind of rounded and it, it was more curved i should say uh, and that's the, the new era of, of those kinds of cleats. And then um, I immediately came off the plane into a tournament, into a soccer tournament. And I was always always the penalty taker. Uh, I never missed. Uh, not once. Truly didn't. I think I was at one point 18 in a row for the year. Uh, and it, it was virtually impossible for me to miss just to set up the scene here. It, in penalty shots and everything else I missed. But in that one, I did. And then I walked with these cleats. I felt like a million bucks. No one had them in, in North America yet. And then I was walking the tournament. We were in the finals. Uh, and then they they uh, left me off just to get some of my uh, training done before. And the second half came around. They put me on. I went right into the penalty shot. I stood back. You know, For some reason, I started to get a little bit nervous this time. And then I, <laughs> I ran towards uh, the ball to kick it. And then all of a sudden, I... <laughs> with these beautiful new cleats, I stubbed my right toe into the ground and then just kicked it on the ground very slowly, uh, rolling very slowly towards the goalie to a point where the goalie could have actually dove in a different direction and then been able to crawl back and still would have saved it. Uh, and then after that point, uh, it I definitely humbled me a lot. But that was the experience that's etched in my memory. Were you still Ronaldo fan after that? No, I think I was waiting for the other Ronaldo to come. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's why you
0: couldn't find the cleats in Italy? Because if you're speaking about the other Ronaldo yes. Brazilian player, is this the mid to late 90s at this point? Because yes, I remember yes, what, correct, because correct. if this is the same Ronaldo from Brazil, yes. he's the one yes. that didn't he have a bit of a panic attack the eve before the World Cup final in 94 in the USA?
1: I actually didn't remember the panic attack, but but you're probably obviously you're right. Uh, I just don't recall it, but that is the same Ronaldo with it's, that patch at the front of his head.
0: Yeah, it's one. It was one of those things where it wasn't really reported on okay. until after the game was over, okay. and then there were a lot of questions. I mean, they won, so I'm I'm wondering if maybe it was just very sacrilegious for them to carry those cleats because you said these cleats were also in the brazilian uh colors like they were blue and yellow they were correct yeah
1: to carry that's them in italy
0: way. like very tribal like you don't want to be carrying that around <laughs> that's a selling that or you might I, change the colors if you will in italy and were they nike or adidas
1: oh man that's a great question i want to say I they were, were nike i thought they were, i was gonna say i thought they were nike as well but i think that was one of the first forays with nike really getting deep into it but i can't recall uh but yes you know what I, I wasn't as smart as you, clearly, as a child, because I did not think of that uh, the, the shoes being in. And I just assumed Europe, they would have it because they're always ahead of their game. Uh, but in that case, yeah, I guess we well, could use you as a friend. then.
0: Through my travels, I've had a chance to, to go to Europe a number of times. And in one instance, I was backpacking by myself. And in London, you know how people will sell like knockoff jackets for football teams but they're not really knockoffs they just say chelsea and it happens to be blue but they left out the fc and the official crest when i was in london i picked up one of those for like 20 pounds it was a little colder than i thought it would be so i wore it around and in two places i i don't want to say i got picked on for it but i became a bit of a target a very soft target it wasn't the end of the world one was in hamburg in germany where I went through the red light district not because I was looking for any fun but just cuz I was sightseeing and I was by myself I think we should
1: switch the interview around I kind of want no. to learn a little bit about that
0: <laughs> No well what happened was two guys who looked like they had been drinking their entire life they were like these two old gentlemen sitting on these chairs and I mean when they smiled their mouth was like a jack-o-lantern had maybe one or two teeth in it and like they lit up when they saw my jacket and they'd point at it and like you could hear them like chelsea chelsea they would kind of say in like this raspy voice and i got the hell out of there and then a little bit later in that trip i was at barcelona at a shawarma shop and which i shouldn't have been wearing that jacket in barcelona
1: but the or guy been behind- to a shawarma shop in barcelona
0: well it was good shawarma but the guy's like oh hello, Chelsea. Like he was speaking to me in broken English. He's like, what would Chelsea like to eat? And I'm just like, <laughs> oh God, here we go. And I'm like, can I have a chicken shawarma? Oh, Chelsea likes chicken. And he yell to his other, his other uh, colleagues who were making the shawarma. <laughs> Chelsea <laughs> likes chicken. What does Chelsea want on his chicken shawarma? And I was just like, bad idea. So after that, I kind of learned not to wear certain soccer jerseys in certain places. And I just figured that, that kind of tribalism would extend to shoes, simple things like colors
1: or not to go to the red light district. I mean, either way, whatever (laughs) lesson you learned, I guess.
0: If you're going to be in the city once, you might as well see everything. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, so why do you credit your mom and dad as being some of your biggest
1: influences? Other than, uh, I mean, I'm fortunate to be from a loving family. Now, they were divorced when I was two years old. My memory serves me correctly. And my father has, uh, and my mom, for different reasons taught me a lot of empathy and being a only child and for coming from divorced parents there's the stereotype where uh, obviously you're spoiled and so on and i'm not saying that's incorrect at the time however uh you could develop a certain amount of an ego at that time and my dad always helped me uh, stay grounded and both my mom and my dad helped me with a lot of empathy. My mom was going through some things at the time. And when she was going through it, I was able to see how different people were reacting to her. Uh, as a result, that enabled me to really dig in and observe people and learn about people. And then through her, learn about empathy as well. My father also taught me, uh, he was he wasn't religious, but he uh he believes in in the core values, as does my mom. So in that way, they're called liberal-minded or more spiritual. But they they taught me uh, to just just the fundamentals of being a good human. And another thing they also taught me as well is just to be live as private of a life as possible. Uh, now in my industry, in the entertainment business, and now the ad tech business, a little bit difficult because sometimes. But there's certain aspects of my life that are I keep very private. And other ones I show it, but my father overall always said to, um, you know, uh, have your successes private and your failures private and learn from all of them, but, but do everything privately. Uh, And I don't know if it was for evil eye reasons or what it was, but that's always been in my head to try to live somewhat of a simple life, or even if I want to enjoy some of the materialistic possessions, then do so also quietly uh, to a point where my dad actually would, even if he had a nice car, he would purposely not drive in certain areas of the city, uh, just so that way he wouldn't make other people uh, feel a certain way just because he had a nice car. So he would either just get another car that's uh, more, uh, more, I would say, purchased average or average, yeah. Uh, and he would he would do that because he never wanted to make anyone feel bad or impose on anyone. So I, I learned different things about that. And, of course, bad or good, but in the end, uh, I learned a lot of things from him. And so dad. how has that impacted your ability to enjoy your success? It's very conflicting. I feel like I'm actually very religious then in that case. <laughs> Isn't it where in religion we always feel uh, conflicted about things? Uh, I feel like that's the same principle here, regardless of what religion you're in. We always seem conflicted. So I feel in this case as well, I feel very conflicted to a point where uh, any success that comes uh, and I'm fortunate for it to come after a lot of the different failures that, that I'm blessed to also have to learn from when those happen. It's, it's an interesting experience because part of me wants to just shout it from the rooftops because it also helps the business as well, frankly. But part of me, has a little bit of fear in it where, I don't know if it's humbleness or or fear, but, or they're mixed together, but definitely wanna keep it to myself to preserve it uh, and protect it so more of it happens. So I'm not really sure. Uh, I haven't figured out the formula on that yet. So definitely conflicted would be the best terminology to use.
0: Has that been difficult to do because of social media? Cause I'd say you and I both grew up without social media, I had similar lessons as well from my parents where it's like you keep that stuff to yourself. But at the same time, you could look around as a child or as a teenager going, well, it's difficult for me to broadcast that. I can tell a bunch of people, but it's really not going to go farther than them. And now in a simple tweet or a simple post, you can put it out there. And it's very tempting to do that simply because everyone is doing it.
1: It is uh, very tempting. There's no doubt about that. Uh, however, I've been fortunate, uh, maybe in spite of my upbringing or just uh, whatever the reason is, I'm not sure, uh, truly, however, I'm the one that usually chooses the further line at Disney, for example, I call it a contrarian is another way to say it, but self-proclaimed, but every action that I do, I always look for the, the, path of least resistance but also uh and sometimes most resistance but the path that most people are not taking whether that's good or bad I have no idea Uh, all I know is that that's I'm attracted to those kinds of paths so the aspect of of other people doing it in fact turns me off uh, to be transparent Uh, however the part that everyone's doing it that turns me on to it is because some of the marketers are on it and they are are judging based on the activity and rightfully so because there's so many vendors out there, so many tech platforms, so many other opportunities for them to, to build a great campaign for their clients. But at the same time, it's uh, so then you almost have to show something for them uh, just to show that you're active. And if you go too quiet, then you you may have to work a little bit harder for that extra business because the beauty about promoting yourself or promoting the company uh, on social and other places that they have access to the marketers have access to is that they are at least able to uh, it, it's working for you. Basically you'll get more inbounds that way. So there's also something to be said about that. But personally, if I had nothing to do with placed uh, and nothing to do with my son and his endeavors, I would not uh, be on social media other than LinkedIn, which I enjoy.
0: What did you learn about yourself from your very first job delivering the penny saver? And first and foremost, for anyone listening to this, tell us what the penny (laughs) saver is, if they don't know.
1: You know, a penny saver is a pain in the ass. (laughs) I mean, is this Howard Stern? How deep can we get in the customer's? Look, but, uh, I can empathize with this because
0: I used to deliver the Mississauga News and we used to have to stuff the flyers in there and yeah. if the Canadian Tire flyer was missing, I mean some woman would raise hell on the street and come after you or she would call my boss and insist that they didn't get the Canadian Tire flyer and in some cases there wasn't even a flyer for that that edition. So I was getting reamed out for something I shouldn't have even delivered or couldn't have delivered. So yeah, you know, we we can we can do a whole podcast or a whole episode on that. But you go first.
1: Penny Saver uh was Basically, a newspaper that provided a bunch of discounts, coupons, some news, but generally speaking, uh, just some good deals and what's going on locally in the city, in that territory. And exactly uh, what you said, uh, that I had to stuff those flyers. It was very short-lived because, man, it was a lot of work uh, just to do that for hardly anything. And although I did likely the wrong thing uh, by wrong thing maybe is too harsh on that moment but but I should have stayed longer to give it more of a chance to learn more from it instead I did bail on it and, and maybe because of that moment uh, I don't give up on things as easily anymore but then I did and what that did teach me though uh, at that time at the penny saver is one I certainly didn't like doing it but I did learn about hard work uh, I did learn, some, some of it was learned from that, some of it actually from my parents. And then another thing, another lesson I learned from the penny saver was that I always want to work for myself. I didn't feel that this, it, it was capping my potential. I didn't like the feeling of being capped or leveraged or however you want to call it. I, I like to, at an early age, go after my own ambitions. And that's essentially what it taught me. You did enroll in university
0: and you enrolled in international business, but tell us why your university career barely lasted
1: four weeks. How about we say it the other way? It actually lasted a whole four weeks because of the fact that my father is a PhD. Uh, my mother has a master's degree in physics. My dad is a PhD in electrical engineering. Um, my family, uh, I won't out them now but there's a lot of uh, high academics in our family as in terms of cousins and so on. My stepmom also has a master's degree as well. So and they have a Persian background. Now, as I mentioned before they're very liberal minded but at the same token they're still out of my father especially wanting uh for a son to to have a secure future. And the only way he knew he knew how or he knows how at that time uh was get a degree, which, you know, fair enough, it mitigates the risk, you're more likely to get a job and so on. But he's never seen a life of entrepreneurship, at least up close. And all I could do is just go for that path. But in order to appease him after several discussions, and I'm being soft on the word discussions, but uh, going through these different uh, discussions over time, He didn't force me, but I I chose to go in and I said, "Okay, well, let me at least try to appease him from the types of degrees that I can get there and the types of majors or that I can pursue international business, is the one that's more appealing to me. And I I speak four languages at the time I did as well. And just and and leveraging my entrepreneurship uh, or sorry, using it for entrepreneurship is definitely something that I felt uh, I could use international business for. But the theoretical aspect of, of university and college, even though college is more practical, but generally speaking, the, th- the theoretical aspect was a big turnoff for me. I, I enjoyed learning uh, the ups and downs more immersively by actually doing and taking action. So I immediately dropped out.
0: Okay, so your university career lasted, we'll say, a whole four weeks. <laughs> yes. You left Penny Saver early into, uh, into your run there. Is it safe to say that if... You don't like something, you have very low tolerance for continuing it.
1: That's a very good assessment. I feel like now we're in a therapy session, so I love it. <laughs> okay, let's, we're going to break it in. down further. Yeah, yes, exactly. Please. Uh, let's talk about the traumas first. Uh, but yes, definitely that is, uh, that is exactly what it is. And, and over time, I've started to really lean into not trying to fix my or improve my weaknesses instead delegate my weaknesses and lean into my strengths in other words based on what you said is that if there's something that i don't like it's it's likely either it's a weakness or it's just something i'm not passionate about or i just i truly don't like even though i'm not passionate about it but it's not something i want to do then in that case i will delegate if it's something that i want to do or i feel it needs to be done and i'm the best person for for that position uh, and especially as a ceo of course all of those duties, it's, it's in my blood. But those are the kinds of things that I will do everything I can and and learn from people much smarter than me to work on leading better on a daily basis and, and growing a company and scale and then scaling a company at a certain point and learning those kinds of things. So that's really what I've learned over time from that experience. So uh, definitely, yes. Uh, initially it was, uh, abandoning those situations. And then over time, I, I tried to convert it into something more positive.
0: You come to terms with it very early on that if you're going to start something like placed and you're going to assume ownership of it, there are going to be parts of it, parts of the job that you don't like doing, but you have, they have to get done if the companies are going to be a success.
1: Correct. And the reality is, is that there's many things that I do now that I'm not fond of doing, but I know they have to be done. And based on our, you know, our company growing, there's certain things that you have to wear multiple hats for, or we're graduating from being a startup into a grow up essentially as they, as they coin sometimes. And we're getting closer to that stage and I'm very grateful for that, but we still wear multiple hats. I'm looking forward to the day that it's a bit more siloed where we can really be more focused on what we all do best, whatever that is for each person. And so we're growing towards that. But until then, I will gladly uh, contribute as, as a part of the team to uh, do everything I can to, to push us forward. And even if that includes certain things that I don't like, but I can't delegate for whatever reason.
0: So you left university after one month. What was the response? What was the response by your family, considering your family is full of academics? And then at what point did you say,
1: I'm out of here, I'm going to L.A.? Well, at that point, as uh, soon as that happened, my dad and I started skipping around town and he bought me a lot of clothing and bought me a house and a car and he smiled and said, have fun in L.A. <laughs> I wish. Uh, OK, no, I was going to say, that. I'm like, yeah.
0: that's a pretty good that's better than a degree.
1: Yeah yeah exactly no kidding. Uh no of course not. We got in a huge argument and that argument lasted for a while and then eventually uh I got smarter about the way I argued uh with my dad specifically and then I started to actually in a more calm fashion after falling down a few times explain to him the many reasons why it's beneficial for me to move to LA and how that will then translate into a better future. I don't recall exactly what I said, but whatever I said, it somehow worked. And then eventually, eventually he came around and appreciated it. But initially, it was definitely a lot of push and pull, a lot of tension.
0: What was their view of you going into the entertainment industry? Because that is the complete polar opposite to what they were in between, you said your dad was in aerospace, but he had a PhD in electrical engineering. Uh, you mentioned that your mother had, what was it, a master's in physics? Yes, exactly. you complete Uh, opposite from the entertainment industry. So (laughs) did they they look at that and go, yeah, that looks sexy, but that's not consistent work? Because I know the way your parents are thinking, and they think a lot, like my parents, where there should be no peaks and valleys. It should be consistent plateaus, and then there's a peak because you go to the next level. Plateau a bit, and then you peak. And it's kind of like you're getting these promotions and
1: growing, but there is no fall off. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The thing is that... As immigrants, they were 1st gen—you know, first generation um, immigrants. So, well, I was first generation Canadian. They were, and uh, and when they came to this country, they—the immediate action for most immigrants is to conserve. And then, because of what my dad and my mom and our family did, that even gave me the platform to even have the thought that success and big thinking is even possible. So I owe, and that's another thing I owe completely to them, is that I recognize that anything I'm saying now is because of that sacrifice they made by counting the pennies uh, to get to that point. They didn't use a penny saver, but counting the pennies. Uh, And I'm very grateful for that. So I realize this as I'm about to answer your question, is that with all of that in mind, which goes out the window uh, whenever you're that age, Around 18, but they were worried about me going to, to the entertainment industry. In the Persian culture, being in entertainment uh is, is frowned upon in a lot of aspects. It, it's kind of, I wouldn't say that the lowest of the of the people stereotypically, but it's uh it's perceived as definitely less stable, a little bit lower uh in terms of hierarchy of. Of uh, positions in in society in the Persian culture, over time that shifted, uh, but still has a little bit of that uh, around it, that stigma around it. But at least for my parents, once they saw me in the entertainment business, uh, at this uh, this Persian show that was airing all- around the world, and then when they start seeing and then their family start calling, uh, or relatives start calling them, uh, then and saying they saw me, and then they thought how you know they thought they're complimenting it, so in the end, my, my dad and mom finally came around and said, okay, maybe he has a talent for this. Maybe there's something there. And then after that, then they were just supporting it, thankfully.
0: I want to touch on that a little bit more. How did that show come about?
1: When I was 18, uh, I definitely wanted to be some kind of, well, I want to be an actor, which I, I certainly wasn't good enough as an actor. I did a few things, but I, I was not good enough. Uh, and I also wanted to be a host. I had more of a chance of being a host, uh, but again, because as an entrepreneur, I uh, wanted to also be the producer of the show. I wanted to create it. I didn't want to have a boss above it, even though technically we always have, like our clients are our bosses, essentially. Let's not mistake that. And, and Oh, them, there's
0: always someone we answer to, and it, usually it's, it's the people writing the checks.
1: <laughs> exactly. And in that, in that respect, I'm actually very happy to, to serve them, as long as, but not blindly either. And that's a whole other discussion we'd like to have, but uh, not blindly either, but we'd like to give value to people. uh, But if it makes sense for both of us to work together, but that's uh, just a side tangent. As far as this particular case, once we ended up, once I ended up deciding that I want to be a host and a producer, the lowest hanging fruit was in the Persian community. There's less barrier of an entry to get in. And because I'm a second generation, technically, or at least first generation Canadian. Uh as a result, I I wanted to create a variety type show uh, where interviewing Iranian celebrities and, and American celebrities, Canadian celebrities, and just doing some other fun things for people my age, because at the time there's a lot of older programming on Iranian TV for the most part. And also wanted to do it in such a way where people like me that spoke kind of a broken version of Farsi or at least tried their best with Farsi uh, could actually relate. And at the time there wasn't anything that I I'd noticed at least at that time uh, there. So through some contacts of our family uh, extended family that she was a famous actress in Iran. Uh, and then she was also a big concert promoter for a lot of the big Iranian singers. So then she knew a lot of the studio or uh, the networks and then she connected me with them. I still had to do the full. I created a show, produced it with the support of my dad, actually, at the time for the first couple episodes. And then eventually uh, pitched it to them and said, here's a finished program. I'd love for you to air. It. It's going to give you a whole new market of people, new audience. And uh, they they accepted. They gave me a pretty good time slot. And then it started to pick up some speed. I was very thankful about it. Uh, and some steam, and then eventually uh, started to get some shout outs from the main a- anchors in that in that network, which then helped, again, snowball the validation from my parents. Uh, but that's basically how I got into it. And it was one of the best experiences also. I had really great experiences in my life, the good and the bad, but it was a really nice experience.
0: So did you exclusively cover um, Iranian entertainment while you were living in LA or did you mix in a bit of Western culture with that as well? Because I know that, I mean, I, I don't understand the rules of the laws very well in Iran, but I do know from speaking to other guests, a mutual friend of ours, Mo, that when he was in Iran, all of his, uh, all of his Kung Fu movies were seized by the revolutionary guards. So were there any limitations to
1: what you could talk about? If there were, I didn't adhere to them. Uh, oh, that's the reality
0: without a cause
1: <laughs> <laughs> we uh we did uh, for example had this one segment where we asked uh women and again i was 18 at the time but uh different women and men actually but mainly women the best pickup lines that they heard and uh that they've heard from guys or the, the craziest or the funniest pickup lines i've ever heard and something like that likely traditionally speaking would not go over well uh with with what you mentioned However, that so I wasn't doing it intentionally. It's just it's just how I grew up. I didn't restrict myself, and again, uh, because I like to give value to to the people uh, that the or the audience that this was for, that I felt would be doing them a disservice by by you know filtering anything or censoring anything. Uh, so no, we did also do though some uh, we did interview some Western culture celebrities, some American celebrities from you know the Boy Georges and some other big A-list actors and so on. Uh, and we did that all the way through, but we also mixed in everything that a typical 18 to, or 16 to 22-year-old would like. That's essentially what it was, but enough where even parents would could watch it and enjoy it with their family and have some good co-viewership.
0: Who was the biggest actor or celebrity that you interviewed? You mentioned well, Boy George. That was a surprise.
1: Yeah. I mean, Ethan Hawke, I would say, was a fun one. I asked oh, him if he nice. stole anything, which was fun.
0: What what film was he coming off of when you uh, interviewed him, or what was his most recent film?
1: If I recall, it was related to 16 Blocks. Wasn't it 16 Blocks? Was that the one where he was stealing? I thought it was 16 Blocks, but I could be wrong, because that was Bruce Willis in 16 Blocks. but. It was something where I thought it was with Mark Ruffalo, if I'm not mistaken as well. I forget the name now, but it was something that he was he was a thief in it or something to that effect. So why
0: did the show come to an end? Because it seems like this was a great thing that was working for you. You're 18. I mean, you turned your back on traditional education. You proved your parents wrong. You showed them that, no, I can go out on my own and do it without all the formal education that everyone else is conforming to. What brought this to an end?
1: I mean, I did over 100 episodes uh, of this show. And then once that was complete, unfortunately, the the tragedy of 9-11 happened. And again, my, my dates may be off a little bit, but at some point that happened. And soon after that, uh, I came back um, because it, it started to get a different atmosphere in uh, where I was living over there in L.A. And the atmosphere started to change a little bit, unfortunately, for Middle Easterns and so on, even though. I was born in Canada and, you know, uh, have certain things that maybe I wouldn't have typically gotten profiled, but it just felt different. So not knowing what it was, and there was a lot of fear in the air, a fear of the unknown, which was, and it was a huge tragedy. It was was horrible, horrendous thing that happened. Uh, And then I decided to come back and just, but not to Ottawa, but to come back to the the entertainment capital of Canada. Uh, Toronto, Vancouver's close and certain in film and so on, but but at least Toronto was the all-around entertainment capital of Canada. So I came back here and then ended up doing a few more episodes of of uh, the Persian show, and then eventually decided to partner up uh, with a friend of mine that was a producer, uh, and then in the, in, in the Western culture, and English TV, and then eventually partnered with him as uh, co-producers and then ended up getting some advertisers to fund uh, our show, what you would call now product placement. Uh, And then we ended up producing a cooking show uh, with uh, cooking with celebrity chefs and known chefs at the time, cooking with wine and spirits. And I was on a local station in Ontario called Sun TV at the time. Oh, I remember Sun TV. (laughs) You did?
0: Yeah, Yeah, it was a quick
1: station. Yes, perfect. And thank you for, for the, the one viewership we had. I really appreciate it. Thank you for watching.
0: <laughs> I'm sure you guys had more than one person. But uh, but you weren't just
1: producing it. You were hosting it too, weren't you? I was, yes. And that was uh, partially for budget and partially for exposure reasons. Uh, and we, we were co-hosting it with with uh, him and uh, myself and and my business partner. And it, it was also a great experience. I learned how to cook. By doing that which which was great it was okay a lot so that fun. was my
0: next question were you already a foodie did you know how to cook and you were just sharing that talent with the world or were
1: you kind of building the airplane mid-air uh completely mid-air kind of like what was it reed <laughs> hoffman that said that uh about... I, I think it was reed hoffman yeah i love that i love that quote that he says again i'm going to misquote it so i won't say it but it's an incredible quote if you check that out uh and yes uh so i was definitely learning as I went, then usually that's what happens. I, I'm not afraid of going into different industries uh, because I, I truly am curious. So many, there's so many beautiful industries in this world and, and so many unique and interesting things to do. And if I have an idea that I think will, will stick and it, if it's something in relation to uh, a passion of mine or something that I really want to do, uh, I have no problem doing it. There's no fear of doing something which I'm grateful for again, very grateful for because my parents set the tone for me to be able to do that. Uh, But what happens with that uh, sometimes is uh, yes, you do learn, you have to learn on the go a lot of things, meaning that you fail very fast, which is the best thing you can do in life is fail fast. Uh, But you do fail a lot initially. And you get a lot of you, you start developing this imposter syndrome, which I've carried with me throughout my life and everything I've done. And eventually you shake it off, uh, but it takes a while.
0: Yeah, please tell me how you shake it off. I think myself and a lot of people listening would love to know how to get rid of that.
1: I mean, the short answer is mindfulness. Truly is the short answer. Uh, the, the being aware of it is 50% of the battle. And once you're aware of it, and then once you surround yourself, in my belief, with smarter people, a, smart, a smarter and bigger network, of uh, people much smarter than you in that room. And when you eventually surround yourself with those people, and these are in some of those smarter people's cases, they're extremely wealthy. And then once in my case, once I started to speak with some of these people, I started to realize that other than their incredible actions that they took within the way that they were able to become wealthy, and then and then, continue to become wealthy by other revenue streams, diversification, and so on. And discipline and all of that. So that's not taking anything away from them. But from a human perspective, they were just as insecure. They were in just different ways. They had similar, you know, their own traumas from when they were a kid. They were just like an average, just good old-fashioned human, just like any of us. And then once I was able to normalize these different people, Again, they're still smarter than me in this particular category, but they're just people. And once I was able to normalize that, then, and paired with the awareness, paired with therapy, by the way. The last few years, I I go to therapy every week, which I love. Uh, It it regulates things for me. But doing that, accumulation of those things, and age, frankly, as you get older, you start reflecting more. And then all this uh, put together... Uh, That's what ended up happening for me anyway. The imposter syndrome is still there, but it's been diffused quite a bit. And then it's also aligned with uh, this purpose. Again, I'm I'm throwing another piece into it, but another ingredient. But once I uncovered the purpose then, uh, or at least my perceived purpose of what fulfills me, and then I, I paired that into it as well and added that whole equation together, then I felt that the imposter syndrome started to diffuse itself because, you know, I'm, I'm worth it. I'm, I'm, I I can do those things. And it took me a while to get to that point of thinking that, uh, that I belong.
0: Is it safe to say that this role was your first bit of exposure
1: to product placement? Well, technically uh, the kind, very smart, intelligent Persian community in television specifically are fantastic people, but (laughs) They don't pay anything <laughs> at the time. Maybe now it's changed. I hope it has, but they didn't pay anything. So that was my first foray into product placement because we had to get some local Iranian sponsors to give us money to continue the rest of those episodes to get over 100 episodes. But my my more westernized experience, yes, that is accurate. The cooking show was when we secured uh, Corby Distilleries, which which runs Absolute Vodka, wiser whiskey and so on and some different wines and many other products and they were just one of our sponsors and then we actually integrated their product just like product placement we would integrate their product into the show as an active integration and that was definitely the first foray and then it went from there
0: and from there you started handling product placement for hgtvs love it or list it tell us a little bit about what that was like and how you got the role
1: well first of all Have you ever renovated?
0: Oh, God, yeah. And it has been, uh, yeah, it's been incredibly stressful. I've got stories
1: about that. Did you want to love it at the end or list it?
0: We wanted to go after, in one instance, we wanted to go back to the contractors and get them to fix it, but that's a different show altogether. But, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I see kind of torn, love it or list it. I mean. I mean you make the renovations so you could love it even more but I am very familiar with the show. I have watched it quite a bit. And and I kind of I kind of feel for the the gentleman who's the real estate agent because it seems like only 30% of the time he wins and the other the other 70% of the time is I forget the other the name of the lady who does the renovations. Very far. Yeah. Yeah, she's the one that usually ends up winning. Because it's a contest between the two of them. Like, can they convince them to love it or list it? He's showing them properties that they would he would rather see them move into. And they're trying to discern whether or not the space that they're renovating makes it more lovable.
1: You know, absolutely great description of that show. Uh, and in fact, they did hear about that 30% before. So that's interesting you, uh, you, you noticed that as well. It was my uh,
0: observation because it just seemed like, I don't know, it's kind of like watching superhero tv show and then oh my god the bad guy won it's just like we weren't expecting that and then <laughs> you watch that show enough and you're like hey they, they actually want to list it huh didn't see that coming
1: exactly but i will say that uh, yes yeah, so so i loved uh watching the show before i got a job on it and the reason i pursued the job because the world of producing tv is very unstable and i needed to stabilize my life and start building it and then uh eventually uh i saw an ad uh, job posting that uh, said for this HGTV renovation show. In fact, I think it probably also said Love Your List. I think it disclosed it. Uh, and it's in, in so many words, it said, we'd like you to get some free stuff, uh, do some deals with some with some brands to get free stuff for the show. The brands get promoted in the show and the homeowners still pay for the renovation, but they save a little money. Uh, and." As a result, I said, this is perfect for the last so many years. I've been getting free stuff for shows. I've been getting money from brands. I've been integrating them and so on and so on. So I figured this was a very niche, odd niche job posting to see. And I felt that I was perfect for it. I really did. So I went into it very confidently, wore a gray suit, actually. Uh, Nowadays, people don't wear suits anymore, but it was nice a nice time to wear a suit. And I went in there, probably overdressed, uh, and then... I believe that I looked a little bit like the son of the executive producer. So I don't know. And <laughs> maybe there's some familiarity there. Uh, and maybe that's, I got lucky enough to get it that way. Or is my experience or it was both, but no, I, I did have experience going in. And I'm very grateful uh, to, to her, to Maria, actually. She was one of the founders of that uh, show, the creators of the show. And she hired me and for four years, I worked with them over a hundred episodes and integrating uh, the the brands into that show, and then eventually started our own product placement agency. Uh, and then uh, and then I'll leave it at that for now. But uh, it was uh, it was a really wonderful time to work on that show. It gave me a lot of confidence. How long did it take to film a
0: single episode of that show? Because you're tied to the length of the renovation.
1: Definitely. Well, I will give you an average at that time when I was working there. I can't speak to how it is now because it's still. Going by the way, after all these years. It, it's really incredible what uh her and the team have done with that show uh and the network as well. But essentially, uh what it was is that we had three houses being renovated at once. They were staggered, their demo day, their demolition day was staggered by a week. And each renovation, which were large renovations, if you watch the show, Love or Listed, uh, they lasted from demo we called a demo to reveal demolition to the day that we revealed it on camera where the homeowners walk through it and see what happened uh three and a half weeks so we had three going on at once, staggered by a week and uh and we had the whole reno three and a half weeks per house it was really incredible so the, those we had home we had uh, trades working on top of each other and so on but it was a well-oiled machine at that time and uh i learned a lot Learned a lot at that company.
0: You were the CEO of the Trade Out Producers, heavy in a product placement. What was the company, and what
1: did your role as CEO entail? Trade Out Producers. So Trade Out is uh, is essentially the act of getting free products in exchange for exposure for film and series. In Canada, it's called contra. Traditionally speaking, bartering. Uh, in U.S., it's called trade-outs. So because our primary focus was working with a lot of U.S. films and, and, and series initially, so we called it trade-out producers. Uh, and that's, again, literally the role. In some cases, you know, funds came with it. It was brand-funded in some cases as well. Uh, but, But the point is, that's why we named it that. Because it was also something for SEO reasons that was Googled quite often whenever you were looking for something like that. So we would normally show up first when anyone would ever uh, put in that they're looking for a trade out producer uh, in because we bought both domains uh, in in, uh, Google. So that's the reason we named it that. Uh, And then as a CEO, in that particular case, I think that the largest we ever got was seven people. And. As a CEO, it was new business I was emphasizing on because of my contacts. I was leveraging those and, and just building great relationships and fantastic people helped me. Uh, I remember Maria was a production executive. She was fantastic to work with uh, Maria Frano and uh, Millen curly curry, Millen curry Sharples and many others that have helped me along the way. But these are wonderful people that, uh, helped get the first few clients in there and then over time it's just stacked up and then i had a team that would do a lot of the executions i would help them as well but our team was incredible uh, from jason and uh, the rest of the team as well it's been with me for many years and it was just a fun experience really high octane type experience of having 10 to 15 shows going at once and by the time all said and done we did thousands of episodes on hgtv literally thousands uh, in so many different series, we ended up managing talent on Netflix and HGTV as well along the way of some of the shows that we did trade-outs for product placement for. Uh, and then, uh, we also did a few films along the way too. So it was just a great experience overall. Do you guys have to be on set to manage how
0: the brand is handled? And like, do you guys send them a bit of some guidelines in advancing, you know, don't say this about the car, or you can say that about the tool, Stay away from this. Blake, how do you manage that so the end product is what you expect?
1: If it was a trade-out, meaning bartering, free exchange of product for exposure, then in that case, there is less demands, if you will, that can be provided by the brand because this was an added value. This is more of a passive integration. In some cases, there are some active that snuck in there, but generally speaking, it's a more passive integration. Uh, so in those cases, I didn't really need to be on set, nor did my team. If it was a new client that we just did a full season deal with, whether it's Food Network show or Netflix show, whatever it is that we worked on, and we had to do a full season deal with, then in that case, sure, we would go just from a building relationship perspective. But it wasn't a necessity. We just believed in building relationships more than anything. So we chose that. We leaned into that. Uh, But if it was an active integration funded by a brand, in addition to their product or service, then in that case, there would be demands associated with it. There would also there would also likely be the ad sales team as well from the broadcaster or uh, the marketing team, or sorry, the ad team from the the, the movie studio involved as well. So be many people involved, even though we stick handled it. So we were the middle person, uh, and then we were always on set and reporting back to all the different parties. Kind of like a quarterback. So that in that case is a bit more intense.
0: So what's your opinion on the Peloton integration in the new Sex in the City series? Are you, You've you got to be familiar with what happened with that, right?
1: I definitely am associated with the death of one of their main characters within the show, of course.
0: Like, that can't be what they paid for. Like, was that vetted by anyone? That had to have been. I don't, That that couldn't have been, that couldn't have been a passive integration. And if it was, my God, was it mishandled?
1: I guess it depends. Obviously, I can't speak for... Uh, the Peloton marketing team, although I do know them actually. And and they're, they're very astute people and they are very clever, creative people to a point where how quickly Peloton just grew. It felt like overnight. It wasn't of course, but so they did a lot of things right in that particular case, because of the, my guess is because of the power of sex in the city, In that transaction, Sex and the City were likely the larger player in that, meaning the one that had the most power in that negotiation. So, and one thing that these shows are very, very, and these films are very particular on is that they never, ever, if they can help it, never want to compromise story for any advertiser. In some cases, the storyline is automatically organic with it, whether that's a Space Jam or um, you know it's Toy Story. Well, that's a little bit different because they're uh, or the the Lego Movie. They're kind of running it to a certain degree, but any of those other movies, it's a little bit more organic. But they typically wouldn't have any creative control in those kinds of cases. The only case, so so assuming that's that is what happened, then I can only speculate that. Peloton wouldn't have known in that uh, just based on experience, they wouldn't have known that was going to happen. However, despite the stock of Peloton going down not too long after, I don't believe that attributed to it to that degree. I think that was the noise around it, but I think there was other factors that likely attributed to the decline of a stock because they're also just spike back up from my opinion. So. I think that that publicity gave them some fun awareness because I think logically people understand that generally speaking, you're probably not going to die when you're, you know, going on a Peloton or anything like that, probably. So it's likely that you're not going to. So I think it was more, they they leveraged more of the awareness versus something that people are not as familiar, familiar with. And then all of a sudden Uh, something like this happens and and maybe there's some kind of new food out there that no one's familiar with. And then they saw someone die off that I could see a negative situation there, but for Peloton logically, I think people knew that it wasn't nothing was going to happen when you ride one. I had an
0: active integration go South right in front of me. It was, I was working at the CBC. Okay. We're going to go back about 14 years. I think I was a TV sales rep. And I won't name the client, but I had, they were a CPG company and I had sold them into, do you remember the Steven and Chris show? Of course. A great show. Yeah. A great show. They were doing a cooking segment and they brought on a guest chef, nobody popular, but I don't think she was really briefed on it. And we had the sponsor's product in the background and it was canned goods and they were making pasta. And then she just all of a sudden was just they, they, kind of like kind of referenced it in the background just as they were supposed to and then all of a sudden she was like uh, no you don't want to use that no you want to use fresh not canned and i was sitting there in the audience with the sponsor like the client was there and i'm like literally i'm just like i just wanted to curl up into a little ball and die i'm just like oh god what do we do and we can't address it because they're in the middle of taping the segment thank god it wasn't live yes but uh kudos to the marketing team i was working with at the time because as, as soon as that segment was over one of the marketing guys came over and said look sorry that happened she wasn't supposed to say it we already know to make the uh, the appropriate edits like they had they had absolutely dealt with it immediately and and the the uh the client was happy like the client said look before the segment goes to air in a couple of days can you at least send us a copy of it so just so we can just so we're rest assured that things have been changed and they did and everything was fine but I, I can definitely empathize with uh, with you if you've ever had a situation where things
1: have gone south. There definitely have been times that it's happened like that. And, and and kudos to you, by the way, for rectifying that situation with you and your team. The marketing team
0: did it. I was just turning blue and just wanted to die. Like full like, well, credit to them. I was just like, like, what do you do? It's like. It's like, you're just sitting there in the middle of the bleachers. Like, it's not like we were standing off to the side behind the camera. Like we were in there with the rest of the audience. So it's not like I could go anywhere and do anything. It's not my place to do that. I just have to, I just have to put my trust. in, like
1: you said, the marketing team. Well, you know, uh, there were, there was a furniture, uh, company that we were dealing with. That was just a difficult company to deal with in general. Nothing catastrophic happened. Fortunately, uh, with any brand, uh, uh, truly though there was a couple times that you know we 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 missed something or got cut out there's those times Well, in those of course it's not fun and then you have to compensate it with uh either giving their money back or their product back or or in most cases instead of that we would give them some extra uh integration in the next episode if it was a series or in the next film or whatever it is we'd always make it up to them somehow but That was not uh, the, the, the main, the main one was a furniture company that was very difficult to deal with on this particular show. They just made our life challenging. So when then they, when they were on set, everyone was almost like they were walking on eggshells. So in my case, I just put my head down, did the work and just avoided that. Uh, Didn't avoid him per se uh, the marketing director from that furniture company, but I just put my head down and did my work and then just whatever the end result was, I would deal with it then. But a lot of people got caught up in, in that whole situation and therefore treated him like he was a king. And I, didn't, I wasn't really a fan of that.
0: Let's bring everything full circle. Where did the idea from Placed come from?
1: Initially for Placed, we built and launched technology uh, of a product placement marketplace that uh, was like a dating site for brands to integrate with producers. So integrate their content in series and film exactly what we were doing as an agency, as a manual agency, but we built a technology for that. When we did that technology, that was uh, because of the fact that frankly, after 21 years of doing product placement, truly, I was one half of it was just, I was tired of doing it for that long and I wanted a change. I had a great time, some of the best moments of my life, but I really wanted to change. That was half the reason. The other half is is related to our purpose. And the other part of that is related to growing and and uh, growing a business and scaling it to a global scale that we wouldn't have been able to without technology. But the, that full answer is truly the transparent thing. I have actually rarely said that before. Uh, which was about the fatigue, and I think that's a human thing that we could all understand is that after a while, you just you know want to be reinvigorated with something, and I just felt like I was going stale a bit, and I want to reinvent myself and I'm grateful that I had people around me to help do that uh and then once we realized that the product placement marketplace we're going we we shelved it for now because we realized that there are certain friction points. In product placement that we have to figure out and fix before we relaunch it so we're going to fix those friction points and i won't share them now but uh just for competitive advantage uh, of what we realized and what we learned over that time that's the only reason i won't share them right now but when we do bring it out we will already be solving some of those friction points in the way that people have done it before that i've done it before in in the old school method and the manual method so We'll take care of those, but we're going to launch at a certain point where we feel we're going to time the market and do our best to time the market in a time that we feel it is needed. But until then, what we decided we we iterated and we iterated to enabling advertising within private online community groups. And this is something that we did because realized over time that my purpose in life after well, after my midlife crisis, that is, uh, I analyzed the commonality. Of all the different things that I've done in my life, the big decisions, whether it's girlfriend, frankly, we're getting deep on this one, an ex-wife or anything else I've ever done, jobs I've taken and so on. What was the nugget, the commonality of why I did those things? What drew me to those things? And I identified that it was the fact that I always wanted to elevate the underestimated overlooked. So you want to call that fighting for the little guy or uh or ensuring that everyone has the same privilege as the top one percent ensuring everyone has the opportunity to have the same privilege as the top one percent and so no one can be leveraged people can decide how they want to live and that was very important to me coming from immigrant parents and wanting to equalize the platform the system and i didn't feel that we can do that with product placement necessarily unless we unlocked it for up-and-coming filmmakers then, all of a sudden we have something. Um, but for communities, when we switch to that is because now what we do is we believe that we can democratize advertising globally. We can enable brands from from the, the, the marketing side. We can enable brands to market into these niche communities at scale. You know, they can leverage the trust that these community owners have. With the community members in the mom group, the dad group, the sci-fi group, the sports group, across all social platforms, from LinkedIn, Facebook, Telegram, Slack, WhatsApp, doesn't matter, any community platform. And, But the beauty about it is, on the other side, is that we monetize, uh, we provide money, income to these different community owners in order for them to post these ad messages these relevant contextual ad messages within their communities we provide them income so we we essentially help them earn income and then choose what they want to do with that income in their lives because a lot of these community owners have never monetized their communities before in fact most communities haven't and that's why we're very grateful to be going fast on this globally it's an exciting industry and we're not going to say it's completely blue ocean because the market share even though it's not necessarily communities is still being touched upon by facebook ads and and some typical influencer marketing but this is a world that at scale no brand has ever been now they they eventually will but through us now we're making it easier
0: so give us an example of some work you've done with with a client and what that campaign looked like at a high level. Not looking for any details, but just kind of like, you know, what was their problem?
1: And how did you use an online community to solve it? Ben Affleck film, The Hypnotic Movie in the U.S. It was in about 2,000 theaters. They had a rough opening weekend. The fantastic marketing team from Hypnotic asked us to, reached out to us and asked us to target Hypnotic within specific online groups. And they asked us for sci-fi communities. We added some as well, but generally, asked for sci-fi communities, it was more male-skewed, so dad groups across platforms. Some gamers, because of Ben Affleck, some Batman lovers, even though some didn't think Ben Affleck was the best Batman, but that's a whole different podcast. Uh, That's a separate episode (laughs) that I can contribute heavily to. (laughs) Uh, And then, based on that, uh, and also some local Austin influencers more traditional influencers in that case we did, but everyone else was, was online groups and they wanted to hit a certain threshold to trigger international sales. We were able with a smaller campaign, we were fortunate enough to be able to bring them an additional $2 million at the box office because we're harnessing the power of word of mouth. People engage more when they're an online community naturally, because if your friend, is posting something which is the owner of that community, the admin or moderator, you're likely more to click on it than a random ad that's being served to you on any platform. And there's fantastic platforms out there. And so that's basically what we're harnessing. And I just want to make one statement at least, is that we actually feel that all the different platforms, as long as budget allows and target allows, are, are really great to use depending on the platform. We we like to look at ourselves as, in addition to those, or as an alternative to some of those, but all platforms uh, that are popular right now deserve to still be used, but we are looking for a good market share from them.
0: If someone wants to start working with Placed, how do they go
1: about reaching out to you? They can go on to our website, and go to the contact page. They can also reach out to me directly. At my email, kave at getplaced.com. Kave, I'm sure I probably should spell it K double A V E H at getplaced.com. And placed is spelled P L A I C E D. They can just email me directly and we'll be able to take care of them. Or you can just go to team at getplaced.com and it'll go uh, right to the team this
0: has been a wonderful chat. You ready for rapid-fire questions? Let's go for it. All right, the campaign you are most proud of.
1: The Ben Affleck one? Definitely that one, because that changed the game for us. Your favorite movie? Rudy. <laughs> Underdog Story. And You're... I may have cried a little bit.
0: Do you now have that, uh, that orchestral beat or that orchestral theme from the movie running <laughs> through your head now?
1: Yes. Because you
0: can't. It's like it's kind of like I don't know, it's like watching Star Wars on mute. If you see Darth Vader walk in, all of a sudden dun dun, dun 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 it comes through your head, even though you can't hear it. And I find that with Rudy as well.
1: It completely does. Uh but I must also add the godfather. Ah, Il Padrino. <laughs> Yeah, that was just more an O to you, you know, respect the the host.
0: <laughs> well, you picked the right one, because if you ask anyone that's a fan of the Godfather, uh, the Godfather films, they stop it, too. They pretend that three never happened. Well, It didn't. I don't even know what, to, what you're talking about. That's like a yeah. bonus,
1: bonus, bonus footage.
0: If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you?
1: Well, obviously, I want The Rock to play me because, you know, in, in, that's how I look. In, in, not when I look at the mirror, but that's how I look. And my follow-up,
0: because this is going to net The Rock his Oscar, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it?
1: The Underdog. Your favorite book? Only book that changed the game for me. Ben Horowitz, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Ben Horowitz being the VC from Andreessen Horowitz. Your favorite song? You know, I actually don't have a favorite song, but... I have memories associated with different songs. Tough for me to pick one. One of them that I remember is driving along in a in a rented convertible in LA on Wilshire. And blasting for some reason um Usher uh song She Got It Bad or She Got the Part or She Got It Bad No, She Got The Part, I believe. And then and then La Isla Bonita by Badana the best advice you have ever received you know this one's from my dad but put the work in the shadows without seeking any reward and enjoy the rewards of that life privately with those that you love
0: my signature closing question if you weren't in media what would you be doing and why
1: not delivering penny savers (laughs) but i would be a professional soccer player
0: kaveh this has been fantastic thank you so much for your time thank you victor that's it for today's show for more episodes, you can go to MediaPeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or YouTube.com/slash/atMediaPeoplePodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.